0: Thanks for joining us for this Views and Brews podcast, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy the show. This is kind of an untraditional Views and Brews because we're doing a couple things. We are launching a new podcast, and we're recording one of those wonderful podcasts tonight. So we've been working away as little Rumpelstiltskins in the studio for the past six months or so, right? Putting together a podcast called The Secret Ingredient. And we've been interviewing incredible scholars, thinkers, activists, and researchers about all kinds of food-related topics. We've interviewed Dan Moschenberg about prison food. We've interviewed Cynthia Enlow about bananas, Alyssa Hamilton about milk. And you can go on iTunes and search for The Secret Ingredient, and you can hear an interview we recorded with Sidney Mintz, he's a 92-year-old anthropologist who wrote the definitive book on sweetness and power. And we talked to him about 500 years of sweetness and mass production of sugar in the US. So not really in the US, in the Caribbean. The history, you get it, the bloody history. So anyway, tonight we are celebrating the launch of this new podcast, which is up as of today, by recording an inaugural show. And so I just want to introduce all of the people we have on stage. And then Raj is going to introduce the show. With us tonight, award-winning food and agriculture correspondent from Mother Jones, Tom Philpott. Hello. Also, a research professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at UT, author of Stuffed and Starved and The Value of Nothing. He's currently working on a documentary project about the global food system, Raj Patel. Hello. and our special guest this evening award-winning food and nutrition journalist community activist and author of the new book out today the jemima code two centuries of african-american cookbooks tony tipton martin welcome okay so i'm going to turn things over to raj and he is going to introduce the show because we are recording a live podcast tonight of the secret ingredient Raj, take it away.
1: Tonight's secret ingredient is pancake mix. Um, now, uh, th- it's it, coming from Britain to the United States I was confounded by two things uh, first that there was pancake mix and when you made it it, it made these sort of strange hockey puck things uh, that, that people called pancakes but I mean obviously in in Europe and uh, the rest of civilization uh, pancakes are very thin egg-based flour-based things but here there's you know they, they, they turn into weapons um, and, and 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 you know you you have uh, some some basic sort of of additives that you add to them and you make them at home. But the other thing that I was surprised by was the packaging. And uh, to see an African-American woman on the side of a box of pancake mix confounded me even further. And I mean, there's a lot that's strange about America and Americans, and I've met many of you and you're strange people. Um, The Brits are so normal, however. Yes, (laughs) uh, of course we are. I, I guess I was. Um, I, I, what, what's exciting about the secret ingredient and the idea of the secret ingredient is we don't tell you what to eat, but you, we can tell you why you're eating it, and that's the discussion that we've gone ahead of us this evening. In the secret ingredient today, pancake mix. We're going to actually explore why uh, th- there is an African American woman on the uh, on boxes of pancake mix and what that history reveals. So, Tony Tipton Martin, author of the Jemima Code, what? Is Jemima doing on a box of pancake mix, and why is this a code?
2: i didn 't know we were going to talk about pancake mix <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about the people in the jemima code, so i 'm going to um stay close to my talking points. Um, And I'm really just kidding. Um, There are numerous reasons why we have African American women on the cover of the package, not the least of which is the fact that it was really initially considered a joke um, to put an African American woman on the package. It It really spoke to the confusion. As you said, people are a little confused here in America, and there was a lot of confusion at the end of the Civil War about the place of African Americans in freedom and there was this really bizarre relationship that that white people had with this affection and love for the woman who had been taking care of their children and suckling their babies and feeding them and nourishing them but then they were free and they're like really pissed off about that and so what we get are these we get these confused images right this woman on the package says this is a stellar product if you buy this product you're going to be able to make the greatest pancakes. They're going to be exactly the way that your old mammy made them for you, right? But at the same time, you don't want to, um, I think the guys that were, cre- the advertising men who were um, had this brainchild realized the hostility of aggravating the white women in the household who probably were trying to make really good pancakes too. And so they did these things like distorting the image of this woman. Right, and so she's buxom and she's, um, there are scholars, um, feminist scholars, who have done amazing work looking at um, just the posture that these women hold on the cover of the packages over time, like pouring the milk into the bowl from her bosom. I mean, there's a lot of really deep um, psychology that went into the creation of uh, that image and the placement of it on the package as a marketing tool. So I describe in, in the book that um, codes are all around us, right? We speak in codes we have Morse codes, um, prescriptions are codes, even recipes are codes. Um, and they're really a way that one entity, one person speaks to another group without a group in the middle, let's say, understanding what they're talking about. And so when I say at the beginning that um, the idea of creating an Anjumima image was a kind of a joke, it was that these advertising uh, guys who wanted to sell more pancake flour initially put her on the on the package with lots of hidden messaging that only other people kind of understood, and that. There's a, there's a residue for that today, right? We're still s- confused about whether we should like this image, respect this image, appreciate this image, um, revile this image. There's, there's still a lot of baggage associated with having an African-American woman on a package, but in particular um, on pancake mix.
3: So, so Tony, um, one thing that I, you know, it, it's an incredibly impressive piece of work. Everyone, unfortunately, it's not here with us. It's, it literally just got published today.
0: Yes, that's but it, right. But it'll
3: be available very soon.
0: <laughs> the um, only copy.
3: But we've been reading a kind of a, a copy of it, like an unpublished copy of it, and it's an incredibly impressive piece of work. And you know, the cover of it. Go ahead and show the cover again. So. This is sort of the image of the the code, right? It's this African American woman, non-threatening, motherly, et cetera. Um, can you talk us through? So that that is the image that sort of came, you know, someone like me growing up in the 70s. That that is the kind of image that. If you were to think about the popular culture image of African-American cooking, that exemplifies it. That's the code. Can you just sort of talk us through the history of what it is that that, that was hiding? What was hiding behind that image in reality, in kitchens, in on this continent, for the couple of centuries that preceded that? I know that's a huge question. It's a but, huge but question. Think, and the book sort of answers it, but.
2: So when we chose that image, I can't even take credit for that. We had an amazing graphic designer at UT Press who um, um, conceived of that based on the conversations that we had and on the content. Um, And what you find when you approach this vision, this visual, is that all of us have some kind of an experience, as you said, with a woman like this. So that this image will jump off the shelves and each one of us will have our own reaction, even if it's a shallow reaction like, oh, I don't know what that is. Or it could be from my mother's generation, women who say that image is an affront to me. Um, So there's lots of different reactions that people have had to the image because the image has stood for so many things um, in a coded secret way. Um, So some of the um, ideas that have been postulated about the image and what it implies in society, one of those is that it was a way to keep women in their place. Right, And that impacts black women as well as white women, because now if you've created this image of a hardworking, laboring, struggling, slave, poor, ignorant woman, what modern woman wants to go into the kitchen if if that's the messaging that you've created so so there is that negative um, image that is conveyed um, in this idea of having a former slave type woman um, on the
0: cover of a package or on the on the book yeah you know one thing that really struck me about your book was that there's this long history of ownership of these recipes and this legacy of Southern cooking by white women and white men, and that that ownership has kind of been mythologized by this idea that what is in the recipes is kind of secret or voodoo or there's something in there that you know is is like really mythical, and. I was wondering, how can we, because what your book does is it shows this different history, and it's allowing us to reimagine the history of Southern food and Southern cuisine. And so I was wondering, how can we reimagine that and demystify it at the same time? Is that possible?
2: It's a very complicated story. Um, If we think about the association of African Americans with soul food, and this concept that came about in the 60s when people were trying to find their own way and claim their identity. Southern food, the title, the moniker, had already been sort of taken over by white people. And so here we have this group of people looking for their own identification, and I think in their hearts they knew that the food was the same. Um, but to play up this mystique and the idea that only black people could cook it and that ours just tastes different and you know these nuances that separate Southern from soul even though they are the same ingredients and often with the same methodology. Um, we've all sort of shared the responsibility for this complicated story. Um, because at the same time, those African Americans in the 60s are responding to turn of the century Um, misrepresentations of African Americans as cooking with a kind of a voodoo magic. So like when I speak around the country about this and I'm trying to get people to acknowledge the professionalism and the side of African Americans that is um, competent and professional and um, the type of thing that you would learn in a culinary school, um, a lot of Southern women have said things to me like, well we always knew they were really good cooks and like we don't really know why you're what is this really about? And the piece that is missing is that, yes, they were acknowledged as great cooks, but they were also acknowledged as having a come about that as a natural instinct, and it's simply not true. Um, they may have had an affinity, cooking, right? Everybody can sort of be interested in cooking, um, and you might like it more than your sibling, so your mother draws you in, and then you begin to be the one that's picking the beans and and all of that, and so you do develop an on-the-job training sort of apprenticeship. Um, But this idea that they were just born mysteriously as cooks is really, part of the code that I wanted
0: to refute. Yeah. And we see that a lot. We do a lot of the views and brews on jazz and the history of jazz. And there's a lot of that same mythology that it's kind of like this, this kind of inborn way that you associate with music and that, that blacks and African-Americans just have something that nobody else has. There's this, this mythology around the way that the music is produced.
2: And that's a really difficult thing to tease apart, because if you do look at um, people in the motherland or in the islands, there is a type of soulfulness, a a connection to spirit, um, to the earth, to the ground, um, that lots of people of color have. right In other countries, there is this connection to soil um, and to spirit living. And I think as as white people were observing and trying to figure out what it was that they were seeing in these women, mostly there were some men but primarily women, um, you don't necessarily recognize that someone is measuring when they sprinkle. You just think, "Oh, she just knew that automatically." No, she just knows how much a half a teaspoon weighs when she puts it in her hand. Right? And so there was some um, implied intelligence that was completely um, ignored. You know I don't know intentionally or otherwise. I'm not out to try to prove that. All I can prove is that um, there is an image of them that's different than. What we were told. Yeah,
0: and there's also this wonderful quote with Leah Chase, I believe one of the chefs. Yeah. Who who said when somebody comes to me and says, uh, "I want soul food," she has to ask them, "Well, where is your soul?" Because there's this huge difference between you know cooking in Louisiana or cooking in Alabama or cooking in Mississippi, and that she. Um, she, she said, you know, it is, it's really different, and that she knows the difference between these things, and that identifying that this soul is not just this one kind of mystical thing, but it's a different cuisine altogether.
2: It is, and I think the unfortunate truth that's going to emerge as more students of culinary history explore these um, relics, um, is I think the sad reality is going to be that the true African-American food has been absorbed into what we're calling, what is a regional cooking, right? Southern food is not a cultural food, it's a regional food. And so this idea that race has now um, shaded, there's a white side of it and a black side of it, and yet they both share the same ingredients and the same methodology. Chase also says, um, if you ask her what's the difference, she will say ours just tastes better. And and she doesn't really go any further than that, and if you know her, that's a sufficient answer.
3: <laughs> um, one one of the many observations that I, or thoughts that was going through my head as I read through this book, I mean it's, you know, I think people should understand that basically uh, there's been a hundred thousand, if my numbers are correct, if I remember them correctly, a hundred thousand cookbooks written in the United States, and two hundred of them by African Americans. Is that uh, is my uh, is my math right?
2: I can't speak to the totality, I th- but I can tell you that the University of Alabama has on their bibliography four hundred. Um, I use that list as my shopping list. Okay. Um, and there are duplicates on there. Yeah. Right? So they have different editions. I would say there's probably somewhere, at least that we know of, about 350.
3: And you have a I own couple 300 hundred of them. 300 of them in this book. I have 300. And, and that's out of, I think the number I read in maybe the introduction or, or somewhere is 100,000 cookbooks written in the United States. And just 300 by African Americans, and you've gone through all of them here, or 350, you've gone through 300 of them. And um, and so as you go through them as a reader, you start to see all these incredible trends. And one trend that I was thinking about today was I I as I was reading last night, I got kind of stuck in this incredible section in the late '60s, where you get one after another after another books on soul food. Soul food is in the title, and it seems like it's there's this effort in the air to reclaim sort of to sort of posit the idea of soul food and to put it at the center of what Southern cooking is, one of the strongest American um, cuisines. And then there's an inflection point around 1970 and, you, and in some of her commentaries you, you note, so what, what she does in the book is that she goes, she, she mentions the book and has a picture of it and uh, you know maybe a couple of pictures of recipes and then she sort of explains what's in it and discusses what's in it and a lot of these soul food books in the 60s you mentioned that um Africa is absent from the discussion that the people talk about the slave traditions and the 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 tradition of, of, of cooking in the master's house and also cooking in the in the slave quarters but Africa is not very much mentioned and then we get into the 70s and suddenly Africa comes to the center And can you talk us through that progression, the sort of intellectual progression of these writers in sort of reclaiming and teasing out what soul food is and how it relates to Africa?
2: Sure, that's a great question. And um, as you just say, the books form a natural social history. And so we're able to see a lot about what was happening in the broader culture um, reflected in um, the few books that were published. And in the 60s, um, when there was a very tumultuous time in the United States, and as the black power uh, movement began to really take hold and African Americans were starting to claim um, their own freedom and identity um, once they were literally being set free by civil rights uh, legislation, um, then it is natural that as they start to claim various parts of their intellectuality, then they claimed food too. And, um, but again, now they're thinking back, you can look at all of the Southern books that are out there and they've already occupied the space of Southern cooking. Um, and as, again, I can't really speak for those authors, but as I put myself in their place, I could see them thinking, well, the one part of this food that we have, as Miss Chase said, that white people don't have is the fact that we were cooking it primarily and we cooked it in a very nuanced way, right? So it might have still been um, four eggs and three cups of milk, but the cook made some adjustments according, as cooks do, right? According to her own whims. Um, so as African Americans are starting to find their way and become free, that was the natural, I think, instinct was to go back and try to claim that which had been lost initially. Um, and by the 70s, uh, this idea of understanding your history as it relates to Africa and your true deep roots, again, food culture just followed the rest of the broader society, and there was a lot of uh, intellectual conversation about Africa and Africanness. If you'll think back to the 70s, it was the big Afros, and the daishiki, and uh, people starting to claim African names, Um, so there were lots of other um, Aspects of Africanness um, that that started to emerge in the 70s, um, and so the food took a natural um, turn in that direction. With people speaking, either um, several of the authors had direct relationships to African cooks. Uh, one woman worked for the UN, and so she was able to get recipes that way. Um, Another woman was an educator, a college professor, and so she had access um, to um, African recipes. And so what they explained in their introductions is that they wanted people to discover African food as a healthy, uh, holistic food, uh, largely vegetarian, um, and that this food that had been imposed upon African Americans, this idea of poverty cooking, was not a choice that they would have made had they been given the choice
1: well one of the things to celebrate about the book is that it does represent that sort of complex history of of, of you know, i mean the, the, there are cookbooks that argue against each other for instance in in the 1970s um for, for me activist cookbooks have always been super interesting and super important uh like diet for a small planet right i mean the the the, the sort of million bestseller that launched that that opened many people's eyes in the United States to uh, food and inequality was predated by a lot of activist cookbooks from African Americans and from a, a range of other places, including Elijah Muhammad, yep. who thought very little of soul food. Food and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, uh, about some of the tensions that emerge in activist cookbooks. Because uh, you, you do such a wonderful job of covering them all.
2: And, and that concept of um, trying to uplift the community and remove it as much as possible from the slave experience um, is certainly what Elijah Muhammad was promoting. And so he gives a series of rules and regulations about eating that include um, lots of things that are still with us today. Um, this idea that you shouldn't eat swine. Um, and certain kinds of greens because they're associated with a slave cabin. Um, But he did go deeper than that, right? It wasn't just the social aspects of food. He really could see, as others before him had, that that was a very unhealthy diet for African Americans, really for anyone, to be consuming on a consistent regular basis, right? So he wanted people to consume less meat and to understand that eating meat was not part of our original, Um, um, experience and um, so again his rules and regulations are really quite um, entertaining Um, and he produces two books Um, the second one is really just an amplification of the first one and so that's he reiterates those same rules but in more detail um, as to what we should and should not eat as African as healthy African-Americans and he wasn't the only one Dick Gregory um, the comedian actually went on a Fast. Um, he was fasting for other social causes, but he also makes that point that um, African American cooking in itself is more healthy than it had been perceived to be.
3: To follow up on that, Tony, um, at another point in the book, in one of the essays, you talk about um, how basically the sort of idea of fried chicken and ham, you know huge ham hocks and greens is a bit of an exaggeration. And that a lot of African-American, a lot of, you know, even African-American, quote, unquote, soul, soul food cooking was basically small portions of meat, lots of vegetables, lots of fresh vegetables, things that are, you know, the sort of style of eating that we now consider very fashionable and very healthy. And if you think about it, other cuisines that formed out of poverty, like Mediterranean cooking, like Southern, uh, Southern Italian cooking that is celebrated now grew out of similar uh, shortages of food and people having to be very um, creative with uh, ingredients that weren't very expensive and eating a lot of weeds and things like that. And that kind of cooking has gotten very fashionable. And I'm thinking about one of the the major trends in American cooking now is these restaurants in the South, like Husk, for example. It's a restaurant in, in Charleston, South Carolina that is exalting this very kind of cooking. And I think the the guy behind it, Sean Brock, he does talk about the African-American origins and the, the, the Carolina rice kitchen and the, the slave techniques. And the, the I'm sorry, the African rice techniques that were brought over and implemented in, in the Carolinas that became the basis of that cooking. But do you think that that rise to fashion of places like husk and and there's one in Austin now There's a southern food place in Austin. That's that's very popular. Do you think that it these This trend gives enough credit to the people that actually Created this cooking and agriculture in the first place. Can you talk us through that? Hmm?
2: Uh, well, it seems like this isn't topic is that um, is complicated at every turn, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the real frustration. That's how frustration. we roll here in yeah, Secret the, I, That was the reality of trying to put it together and why it took so long to, to untangle some of this mythology and some of the real icky truths, right? Um, yeah, the idea that you can now pay $25 for a plate of fried chicken if you're in an upscale white restaurant, but if you go down into the hood, you're still gonna be paying a dollar a bone or something like that. Um, That rubs um, modern chefs really uh, the wrong way because they're stuck in this space of trying to demonstrate their professionalism, their classic training, their culinary proficiency in the face of the industry now turning back and saying, well, poverty cooking and pork cheeks and, and pig ear sandwiches are really cool. And so if they don't do that kind of cooking, they're not, up to speed with what's happening um, in the modern restaurant kitchen. But if they do retreat to that, then they're just doing the same old thing. Um, And so we've had a lot of conversations about um, that. And we still have that's an unresolved uh, question. But um, the first part of your comments, um, this idea that the food um, of immigrants improves. Over time, right, that the Mediterranean diet or the Italian diet, um, those groups begin to leave aside those foods that they ate during difficult times. Again, the sad reality for African Americans is often the story line is that they're still having those difficult times, right? And it's very tragic. Um, So those agricultural ways of the farm kitchen. That left out the Africanness or the fresh buttermilk wholesomeness. Um, when they migrated to the city, um, they were still poor. And so they still had limited access to quality, healthy food. So it's natural to retreat um, to what is familiar. Um, I don't want to leave that part of the conversation without the acknowledgement, however, that there has always been. A middle class of African Americans. So even when you think about the enslaved, there was this hierarchy, Um, you know, the in-house workers versus the field workers, and those would be the ancestors of the middle class, right? They had more opportunity, they learned how to read and write, they were given more privileges. Uh, There are authors who say, well, yeah, but we were on call, they were on call 24-7, you know, sleeping at the foot of the baby's bed, but that notwithstanding, they were still given more um, opportunities, and we have a middle class here that has very rarely spoken about, Um, and that's the other exciting news about the Jemima Code um, books, is that it exposes this clash even within the African American community when the agricultural blacks move into a... um, urban environment where there are affluent African Americans who are um, having social activities and operating newspapers and, and doing lots of entrepreneurial things that the rest of America is doing, but we're only hearing about the poor migrating slave food eating blacks.
0: It's complicated. It is. Did I answer that question? I think so. (laughs) Um, Well, we're going to open things up for questions in a little bit, but I'll just tell you kind of about the format. So, the format of this podcast is the three of us, Raj Tom, and I, ask an expert, Tony, um, about one food item or a food tradition or something around food that, that we talk about. And it comes from a BBC show called Frankly Speaking that they used to do in the 50s where they had three interviewers interviewing one person. So it kind of sounds like an interrogation, <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's a lot of fun and it can be. I hope it was fun for you. Um, and another BBC show, which I love and as I want to do, listen to all the podcasts from the BBC, uh, is called In the Psychiatrist's Chair. And I, I was listening to to one today with Maya Angelou I as I was out for my run and she said something which really struck me, which was that African-Americans did not in history have a public place for displaying trauma, displaying this inner kind of sense of, um, of Uh, abandonment and loneliness and trauma that they felt. And then she said later on, because this was from 1984, she said later on that she would take that back. She said there are churches, there are these places. But in your book what I realized was that in the kitchen and in these cookbooks, that was a space where they were talking about, you know, they were using codes to talk about different metaphors around what they had experienced. They were also putting poetry into these cookbooks and they were really revealing their soul in these cookbooks in a way that this kitchen was this kind of semi-public private space where they could work out these, these, this trauma. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of those examples in the book and what you came across that really kind of touched you when you were doing this research? Um, I
2: think what occurred to me not in terms of trauma, but in creative expression. Right? We all have that need and desire. We sing. We we paint. We do. We write. We we have creative, artistic outlets. And these are people who were at least, if we talk about the in the early enslaved Africans, there were no opportunities for outlet for them, right? So unless they could steal away into the woods and have a cakewalk or some other kind of activity, um, cooking and the nurture and care of the family becomes a very important expression. Right, it's artistic, it's creative, it's beautiful, it's compassionate, it's loving, and those are the very qualities actually that chefs today, if you ask them how they got involved in their business, what inspired them, and they'll say, "Oh, I love being in the kitchen with my mom," you know, and it's it's perfectly okay, right, for them to have um, been enchanted by the kitchen, and so I think that um, the re- the reality when I when we look at the history of what was said about African Americans and and cooking, and a lot of us even uh, peers that I have and, and older folks that will recall their kitchen experiences, they're associated with things like Picking the beans or being sent out to the woods to gather the berries and the nuts and oh, what a labor it was. But at the same time, we also hear really lovely stories of family and the idea that everyone took a turn at the ice cream crank um, or squeezing the lemons with grandpa. And over that time, he shares some oral tradition and some family history. And so I think cooking, to your point, um, became an expression of number. Of uh, things for African-Americans, people who had very limited um, ways to express themselves elsewhere.
1: Tony, just a quick thing. You use cakewalk in a way that I've never heard it used before. What's a cakewalk?
2: Oh, you don't know about a cakewalk. So a cakewalk is an African-American activity Uh, Most people don't, a lot of people don't know that. Um, So the modern version of it is it's a game that is played um, mostly by children, um, but maybe at picnics and parties. You make a circle of numbers, one to 20 or whatever, and everyone stands on a number. And then you play music and you march around in the circle. And when the music stops, you land on a number. And then a number is called, drawn from a bowl, and the winner gets to take home a cake. And it's a cakewalk. Um, It's um, derived from an activity of the enslaved um, during holiday times or on their free time when they would be allowed to go into, um, when they had private time. Um, They would have this activity where they would strut. It was was not quite a dance, but it was a walk. Um, But it was was really a strut, and they made whatever kind of cake that they could um, as a celebration. It was an experience and um, sort of like a party for them. Um, And that activity um, goes on today without that reference. So now everybody knows. I played that at Pachanga Fest last year. Did anybody tell you you were playing a black game? Nope. (laughs) I'm glad I don't know now. <laughs> so we play that at the uh, children's picnic that we have annually with Edible Austin. And we intentionally, in order to try to engage the community and, and find safe, uh, normal, ordinary spaces in which to share this information, which is the whole goal of the book, is that we all find a place to convey the truth that we learn from the Jemima authors, right? And so at the children's picnic, we always have a cakewalk, only it's a veggie walk. (laughs) And because the children's picnic is a healthy day, (laughs) then Johnson's gives us a basket of vegetables. (laughs) Come on! (laughs) (laughs) You have never seen.
1: Fake fascists here. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's a a tough crowd crowd.
0: Okay, okay, let's hear from you then Let's take it Uh, Jack is going to come around with a microphone You have never seen the delight on a three-year-old's face when they
2: gather when they collect their prize bag from Johnson's and the bag is taller than them with um, carrot fronds sticking out and they're really excited to see that they won and no, you're not going for that? (laughs) I'll take it, I'll take Um,
0: it (laughs) Go ahead yeah,
4: um, I, I had so many questions, but um, from from my youngest day, my my uncle grew kale, and now it is um, like a really popular. It's thing. the
2: new it's the new collards. If you read Whole Foods. But. Yeah,
4: I know, but but I, um, I I I was I was kind of late so i was i was going to ask you once again um what was the point where it just became southern cooking and then when you know white people were like embarrassed that they'd learn things from african americans and it became soul food i mean i there there was a point somewhere where it's just, you know, racism took over.
2: So I, I'd like to um, be kind and <laughs> say that if we study women's history, that's an easier question to answer. It's easier to answer from that perspective. Women uh, who were trying to find their own identity in a male-dominated world, who particularly southern women who had been portrayed as demure and fragile and ladies and all of that. Uh, whatever, gone with the wind um, imagery, Um, women began um, to represent the kitchen as a place that could be run in a scientific way by people with scientific minds. And we arrive at this new curriculum of domestic science and home economics. And so around the turn of the century, the 20s, we start to see a lot of cooking schools and cooking Uh, instruction books with lots and lots of directions right they're trying to quantify and distinguish between the home kitchen and the culinarily intelligent kitchen so I think that was the real break was um, when women began to claim the scientific side of cooking and measuring Um, and then the black people of course just got caught up in the uh, homespun side of it but an interesting nuance to that is that in the South the I, I don't want to paint with such broad generalization so um, I should, some uh, white women had not done any of that cooking but they wanted to compete and write the way that northern women were writing about the scientific kitchen but the black women had been doing that cooking so they wrote in terms that said things like our famed cooks make it this way or my dear old mammy made it that way. And it, you know, there is some form of nostalgia that goes with that and there is this communication and the question in my mind, okay, are they being loving or are they being disparaging? And none of us will be able to separate those two things. Um, so a lot of it is tied up in, in class and then women's efforts to um, untether themselves from the home, um, which just continued on for you know into his, into the future with the industrialization of the food system, and now we're all trying to go back to canning and all of those very uh, domestic activities. Um, But nobody knows how to do it anymore. So the goal for me is that the African-American women who had been doing it all along can now stand as the role models as they should have been all along um, and teach all of us. Right, We can all begin to learn how to can and eat more healthfully and grow a few things in the garden. You know, one of the fun stories, I'm a segue, thank you, um, is one of the really fun stories here is a woman from Tulsa um, who writes about her um, enslaved grandmother who hid the vegetables behind the flowers. So the master would not allow her to have a garden of her own, which isn't natural. I mean, it isn't the... Um, the total experience. There were plenty of people that had gardens. Um, But this particular master was um, unpleasantly cruel and he would not allow them to have a garden, a vegetable garden. So this woman um, crafts a vegetable garden within the flower bed. And that shows the perseverance and and some intuitive understanding that vegetables and, and those kinds of foods were healthy for them in the sustenance of the kind of work that they had to do Um, and i just think we should give them acknowledgement for that
0: i think also like recognizing that and then the difficulty of growing gardens in urban spaces today you know i mean there's a lot of pushback about where you can grow gardens where you can't grow gardens and and even just growing carrots in l.a can put you in prison so you know there's that's a really interesting kind of um, comparison. And that also speaks to the question that Tom had about um Chef-y
2: versus um, homespun cooking, that all of a sudden now that it's trendy um, to have an urban garden, if you live in a place where there's a drought, you cannot have a garden. So now, once again, as the movement grows, the African-Americans are left behind again, right? Because the broader society has decided, okay, we're gonna have gardens, except if you're poor you can't afford the water right and and so those are some real challenges um, for for them um, that are perpetuating the same history
0: yeah. another question
2: yes
4: Jack? I have James? a question so how much is this really stemmed from early um, early radio I mean because I'm thinking of is like in the before in the 1930s, when they, we still had like the billboards, we had it separated between like you know, the black music and we had the white music. And you look at like music genres coming basically from like Chicago being hosted, and their advertising always are about like you know mammys you know like world famous biscuits. Did that create the advertising mythos that actually created like created this whole concept of like you know this is the quality product that's needed.
2: I don't think so. I think that it it comes purely out of reconstruction and and um, the anger at the fact that these uh, these people are now free and the woman who was once an hour ago able to nurse your baby is now the most dirty, disgusting, horrible person to ever walk the face of the earth. Just, there was so much confusion and anger entangled for people in that, that I think radio and other genres were just an outgrowth of that. The segregation really originated in, um, in the break of slavery. That, that's just my opinion about it. There, of course, there were radio. Um, the, the, I, the image for Ann Jemima comes from a minstrel show. Um, so these the two guys that had bought this flower company in the late 1800s. Um, the story, the legend is that they attended a minstrel show where they saw a black guy, somebody in blackface playing a mammy on screen on stage, and um, her name was Jemima. And they got the they went back and got the idea that there was this. Love and affection, and yet confusion for the woman, um, Mammy, and that was who they um, put up as the image for their product. Um, so, yeah, I think it—I think it came out of that era, and it just
0: transferred onto various uh, art forms. But just so you know, James, next year we're going to do a views and brews on the history of radio and ideology and accents in this space. So. Don't worry, stay tuned.
3: (laughs) Another question? Tony, what's the history of African Americans in attending culinary schools? Um, Their ability to attend or whether they get put in a box once they go there that they can only do certain kind of cooking?
2: Um, Well, there's been um, a delineation in 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 the education field, where the African Americans tended to go into ho- ho- uh, hotel management, hospitality, they, there was a distinction between going to culinary as a chef, as opposed to um, I'm trying to find the delicate way to say. <laughs> Um, you don't have to be delicate I don't have to be delicate Um, there there have been there are African Americans now today more than ever there have been in in culinary schools Um, and there are a lot more opportunities for them because culinary programs exist at the community college level there are scholarships that are available Um, but the real obstacle is getting people interested because this imagery of it as a uh, as service work and hard labor still penetrates in the community so that if we don't put forward enough positive role models, then there aren't that many kids interested in pursuing uh, culinary as a career. And when there, when there were, um, there weren't that many opportunities for them, right? So it's the same as every other story. Once we get access, the uh, storyboard changes.
1: And Tony, can I ask a quick follow-up to that which is first the first cookbook in the Jemima code is about I mean is by a man Robert Roberts and Yes it's, and, and it's about domestic service work And I wonder if you could just draw the line between that cookbook and for example Samuel Houston College uh, at, at which now which is now Houston Tillotson I believe I wonder if you could just talk about that trajectory of the space for African-Americans to work in kitchens and where the first, why you begin the Jemima Code with a cookbook by by Robert Roberts.
2: So I start at the beginning um, and Robert Roberts is the first known book published by an African-American of any kind um, actually uh, in the trades and it was published in 1827. Um, What is, uh, it has been sort of existing on the fringes of cookbook culture because it isn't a recipe book per se. Um, It is a household manager's uh, book. It's a book of instructions uh, from one servant being handed down to the next. Um, What is compelling for me about that book is it demonstrates his um, understanding of management and organization uh, in a way that we have not thought about these being people who were conveying um, instructions like how many inches the paper, the tablecloth could hang over the end of the table or how many inches the flower pot had to be from the knives and there were these this litany of minutia that these people had to remember on a regular basis and so for Robert Roberts to be conveying that um, again the history would portray that as continual servitude and all he was doing was training up more black servants for the white class. Um, But I like to look at the more um, informed side of that, which is what he was actually doing. And he speaks in an intelligent tone. He's um, speaking um, to his young charges in a way that is very affectionate. Um, He tells them really great secrets about um, what to do at the end of the night when the the mistress and the master are drunk, and, and what, you know, to say or not to say the next day. Um, it's really um, entertaining um, to see the kinds of information that they carried around, but we've just seen them, you know, in film as docile, ignorant, you know, and not even thinking about this idea that they were polishing rivets or, you know, whatever they were doing. Um, the other thing about that book, though, is that there are recipes in it. And there are recipes um, for some foods, um, because obviously the, the, um, these people needed to know how to cook some things. Um, but there also are recipes for household man- management, like so what is the best way to keep flies off of glass? Um, And there are things that involve food, right, because they did not have chemicals and products as we know them today. So these are recipes for how to use suet and lime juice to um, deter flies or um, so they're really, really quite interesting. And so even though this book originally was um, a book about women, um, because men are uh, given more uh, space on the page. We do have more history and more knowledge about men in the food world um, who uh, owned hotels or bars or were oyster, uh, had oyster houses. Um, so there are records, um, White House chefs. We, we have information about men, so I was intentionally going for only telling the stories of women. Um, but uh, once I encountered Robert Roberts, I had to um, begin to say that the story, it was the story of the ladies and a few gentlemen.
1: Beautiful.
0: Well, we have come to the end of our show and I would just like to, first of all, thank you for your decades of work on this and this beautiful piece. And I hope that everybody goes out and buys it because it's really a wonderful, wonderful book, The Jemima Code. Thank you. Thank you you so much, Thank you for having me. And I hope you'll
2: all, I hope we'll see you next week at Book People we will be there and um hoover is going to make uh chicken and waffle bites um <laughs> we're gonna play all the stereotypes there might even be some there might there might be some watermelon i don't know
3: <laughs> tony i want tony i want you to know that that i i worked under hoover um 30 years ago at the night Hawk steakhouse oh
2: is that right yeah
3: i was a bus boy and he was a waiter and he is a wonderful, wonderful fellow. Is he in the room by chance? He
2: is I was an hoping amazing, he would come. he's yeah. an amazingly Hoover's, gifted and generous soul. Yeah.
3: Hoover's Restaurant on Mainer Road is, is the fellow we're talking about. And um, I worked under him a long, long time ago.
2: He's a great example yeah. of the Jemima Code, right? Yeah. He's, he's yeah. promoting this food of the culture, but his restaurant is run in a very professional, um, efficient, clean healthy beautiful way so we love hoover Um, next thursday the 24th and the information's in edible austin as well as um book people
0: Beautiful. And we'll have it up on the KUT Views and Brews Facebook page. And also check out, soon to come, thesecretingredient.org. And please go to iTunes and listen to and uh, and rank or whatever you do. You put a little thing. Subscribe to The Secret Ingredient on iTunes. You can hear our show with Sydney Mintz. Thank you so much to everyone for coming out tonight. Thank you to Raj and Tom and Tony. This is wonderful. Have a great night. You've been listening to a Views and Brews, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas, for KUT Radio. You'll find a complete archive of all of our Views and Brews in the iTunes Store, or go to KUT.org for more information. Thanks for listening.